Please turn with you now to the New Testament and to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, beginning in verse 15. Now, when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And he said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. They all, with one accord, began to make excuses. But first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I am going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king? Going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our need for you to open our understandings, indeed to make this word clear to us in all of its meaning, in all of its implication, is never greater, Lord, as we encounter such difficult statements. Heavenly Father, how we pray that the work of illumination would be very true among us and that you would open the eyes of the blind and, Lord, of those who are partially sighted, indeed, that we might clearly see all that is to be seen. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we here and uh, almost the final section of Luke chapter 14. There's just that little section beyond it. But the context of this begins uh, in, back in verse 22. And remember in the previous section that the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and there is still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. 
And this is pointing to this, the wonderful, uh, glorious freedom of the gospel call. It goes out to everyone. In fact, it goes out specifically to what those who would be least qualified in any natural sense, any moral sense, to coming in. It goes out to everyone. And, and we know that the Lord's house is going to be filled and that last day in that eternal heavenly wedding feast there will not be an empty seat it's a glorious truth and now at the beginning of our section in verse 25 it says now great multitudes went with him and so I think that maybe some part of that was sinking in some part that part of the message was getting through because although he often had large crowds who heard him he did not often have large crowds actually following him this is something new this is something in fact something to be celebrated but that helps us to understand what he he says next because the lord is going to say something very very difficult to our ears he turned and said to them if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother wife and children Brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And before we get into any specifics of that, which we certainly need to, we have to understand that the situation of all this great mass of people that were coming with him, perhaps unprecedented thus far in the gospel, those who are actually walking with him, so many of which had no idea what the cost of Christian discipleship was at all. They were under illusions, and they needed to be disillusioned by the Lord at this point. That was the context for this. Because, you see, there is a cost to Christian discipleship. And, and here's where a lot of confusion could come if we don't understand the difference between a price and cost. Okay, There is no admission price to come into the kingdom of God. Right? There is no, at least not one that, one that we're paying. There is a price, but Christ has paid it. That's why he died. That's why he came. That's why he, he died on the cross. He didn't do it for his health. He did it to pay the admission price to heaven that we don't have to do that. So there is no price in our hand. We do not come to the gate of heaven with anything at all in our hands. Not our good works, nothing. In fact, if we try to come on the basis of our good works, it will certainly disqualify us from coming in. It is either that Christ does it entirely or that it is not done at all. So it is a gift. Yes, it is. It's a gift that is freely given. It is a gift that is received by our faith alone as we put our trust in Christ. And there's nothing to be added to that at all. That is not the sort of the way we, we get to one point and then to finish the work we then have to add our own good works. No, absolutely nothing. It is Christ and his work alone. Yet, there is a cost to Christian discipleship. Okay? It's different than paying a price to get into heaven. There is yet a cost in this world. You see, it is not a price that we're handing. We don't have money that we're giving to, to God. It is rather a price that we inevitably have to pay in this present world for being on the wrong side. Because, you see, those who choose Christ are on the wrong side. This world that is in rebellion against God and has been since the fall of man, this seed of the woman, this seed of the servant, there is enmity, there is warfare between these two groups. And if we're picking Christ, we're picking the wrong side relative to the world as a whole. And so there's going to be an inevitable cost. There are going to be, not a, not a price, 
It's just going to be the consequences of being on the wrong side. And that's a cost that we should be aware of. Whether we're just now considering becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ or whether we've been on this road a long time and we've, we've forgotten these things. We need to count the cost. Well, that's, that's the sermon this morning, counting the cost of discipleship. And the points are, are three and very simple ones. The cost stated, the cost illustrated, and the cost summarized. The cost stated, illustrated, and summarized. So first, the cost stated. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his mother, his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, there is no two ways about that. That is a curious statement. Honoring father and mother, that's, that's one of the Ten Commandments. That comes actually before thou shalt not murder. You know, it comes before that. It's an extremely important part of the word of God. And in another place, Jesus will absolutely take the Pharisees to task for failing to live up to those implications of the command to honor their father and mother, even in their terms of, of, the, of financial obligations in their old age. And he says, you are, dis, you are destroying the word of God by not living up to the implications of this commandment. And we need not even get into the many clear commands for husbands to love their wives and their children. So how could he possibly be saying that it's okay not to love, let alone necessary to hate father and mother, wife and children? How does that make sense? Well, of course, the answer is he isn't. He couldn't possibly. The same man who on another occasion was taking the Pharisees to task for not honoring their father and mother is not now saying it's okay to hate them. Certainly not. He is speaking in a comparative sense. And that, the Greek word for, for hatred very much accepts that comparative task. There are many other uh, illustrations of that in the word of God. In which in comparison to your love for Christ. It is, would be in other uh, relative to that. It is almost as if it would be hatred. And mainly what we're speaking about is when and if these things are in competition. You see. All right. We're not speaking on a general plane, like we're walking through life and I'm loving Christ and I'm hating my family. No. It's if ever the family should ever come in competition with Christ, with our willingness to follow him as a disciple, what is going to have to happen then? Well, our ready acceptance of Christ and following him at any cost has got to be so quick and so complete that if someone were to observing it, they might almost think that such a thing could be said of us. Because if those things ever come in competition, the love of Christ must become paramount. It must be very clear. Now, the question is, so now we understand what he's saying, what he's not saying. The question is, is that a reasonable thing for him to ask? Is that something reasonable for the Lord really to ask of us? Well, think of some of the things that have recently been said. Do you remember those, law, those lame excuses that we just went through, that we, we read? In verse 16, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. And the first one said to him, I have 
bought a piece of land and must go and see it, I, I ask you to have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to test them, and I ask you to have me excused. And still another, here's the key. Here's, I think, what helps us to understand all of this. I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Do you see? Family has made it here, and Christ is here. He has invited them to the wedding feast And they say, I cannot come because of my obligations to my family. And that, my friends, is the thing that he's ruling out. That is the thing that he's saying cannot be. If you have any desire to come after Christ, you must understand that that will not fly. Now, what Jesus is saying is very, very simple. You cannot imagine, you cannot think, that you can, you can put your, your obligations, your love, your concern for your family ahead of Christ and imagine that you can still be his disciple. And that's not only, not only is, it not, is it not unreasonable, it's, it's inevitable. It's absolutely inevitable because the nature of following Jesus as a Christian disciple is not like joining a club, right? Where you can do that on top of lots of other things that you do And it is very unlikely that the demands of an occasional social club will actually come into serious conflict with other things in your life. It's just something to do on the side. Following Jesus isn't like that. You are taking sides on this issue, which is the fundamental point of disagreement for the whole human race since the fall of Adam and Eve. You are either on the side of the living God, with Christ at your head, or you're on the other side. That's, that's very simple. And so when you choose Christ, then you will. There will be points. There will be times at which there will be such a conflict. And we must be very clear as to where our loyalties lie. And so Matthew 10, 34. Do not think. Again, for, for those who have, have, have only heard certain very stock phrases given about Christ, these words also come as a shock. But listen. Matthew 10, 34, do not think that I've come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. And what does Jesus say in response to that reality, that very stark and sad reality? He says, he who loves mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than, uh, more than me is not worthy of, of being my disciple. And so back in our text, he says, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Well, what do we say to these things? We say it's inevitable. We say it's very stark. But we say Christ is worth it as well. We have to understand what Christ is speaking to us in these things. When and if, in various ways, the things that we have in this world, the relationships that we have in this world, are are in conflict with following Christ, we have to say, what is going to be the thing to do in the end? What is going to be the situation in eternity that we'll be glad for? We will certainly not be glad 
to have made the wrong decision in this world with regard to what we're going to do in eternity. Eternity is a very, very long time. And we'll be thankful for Jesus to have made these things very clear to us so we understand the nature of the choice. As I say, back in our text, he's saying, he who does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It's not even, family's bad enough. But remember, the world as a whole is going to be upset with us. And the same world that put Jesus Christ on a cross this one whom we know, the most loving man who ever was. So we can't say it was because he was such a terrible person. He was sinless. He had all the fruit of the Spirit in perfect form. Never did he say a single wrong word to anyone at all. And yet, brothers and sisters, they put him on a cross. That same world is still around. And if you come after Jesus, you have to be prepared for the same sort of treatment. Now, does it happen to everyone? Certainly not. But everyone who comes to Jesus needs to know the potential cost, the potential cost involved. That's what he's saying. This could come even to the point of you laying down your life because you're following me. And he's saying that again to a group of people who have just kind of willy-nilly, they're on the bandwagon, they're just following him, and they haven't really considered what it means. And he's saying that to remind them what the cost of discipleship really is. Well, that's the statement of the cost. And then, he, secondly, he needs to illustrate the cost. So he illustrates the cost using these two parables. First of all, the tower, A, the tower, Verse 28, for which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. What I want to say here is very clear. I'm not going to belabor the point, okay? We don't build towers all the time, but we do various projects, don't we? And sometimes there is cost involved. And sometimes, if we're involved in something like that, we're not, the, the person hasn't been clear to us exactly how much it could end up costing us. They've given us a best case scenario. We've taken our car to the garage. And they've given some basic idea. And on the, basic, uh, on the, the basis of that, we say 50 pounds. Yes, that's fine. Go ahead and do it. And then the call comes. Well, actually, it's this thing and the other thing. And the 50 pounds becomes 500 pounds. And we say, at the very least, if we're we're able to do it in the end, we say, why didn't you just let me know what it could have been at the first place? So I would have been at least prepared. We would have at least thought through this a little bit more. And you know, Satan doesn't let you know the cost of following him. You know, when Jesus Christ comes and tells you all the cost up front, in fact, he says it in the starkest possible terms, there is no one who has ever lived who could possibly look at Jesus and say, you didn't tell me how much cost was going to be involved, because if I'd known, maybe I wouldn't have come, because he is saying it to the absolute furthest extent. He's saying it's your very life, everything. You must lay down everything. And I would say that 99% of Christians, the cost is much less than anticipated. Satan, of course, goes the opposite direction, and he tells us nothing about the cost. He tells us about the wonderful, he maximizes these wonderful so-called benefits of the pleasures of sin for a season and following him. He doesn't say an, an, a word about any potential cost that there might be, for instance, our soul in eternity. Never mentions it. 
Well, brothers and sisters, we cannot fault Jesus for his honesty and forthrightness in letting us know the cost. And he doesn't want us to turn away halfway through because we didn't have an idea of the cost. He wants us, rather, to finish the course. That's the point. Well, that's the tower. And B, there's also the illustration of the coming king. Verse 31. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? That's a very good question. Is it possible? I think theoretically, uh, perhaps on, on certain, if you had very different weaponry, uh, very different tactics, let's say one was in the defense and the other one was having to attack, maybe. But generally speaking, if there are two otherwise equal armies, the one with 20,000 is certainly going to defeat the one with 10,000. And so the simple answer is no. He is almost certainly going to lose. And the question is, what then should he do? Because here's where the two illustrations differ just a little bit. The first, they're not exactly the same. The first one has said, look, you need to figure out what costs you're, you're dealing with so you might finish the course. Well, in this second illustration with the coming king, what is, is presupposed you can't pay for it. And you can't finish that. You've got to find some alternative way of making, making things work, as it were. So if you're that king who knows that a king is coming and you can't possibly face him on your own terms, what are you going to do? You're going to come to him and ask for his terms. You're going to ask for conditions of peace. That's what he's saying. While the other is still a great while off. And by the way, when it says in verse 32, or ounce, I think it's better translated, and if not. Because that's the expected outcome in this case. It is expected outcome that you can't do it. While the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. It's the only reasonable thing to do when you know you're going to lose against this coming king is to sue for peace at whatever cost, whatever conditions that might be involved in doing that. Now, do I need to say, do I need to, to draw the, the picture here that this is our situation before God? That Christ is a coming king. He is returning on the, from the, on the clouds of glory. He is coming on that white horse, coming indeed to judge the living and the dead. And those who come on their own terms are not going to stand on that day. You know, Revelation 6, it says, not just of the weak, but listen, of the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? See, you're not able to stand on that day. The king is coming and you're... you're your forces are not sufficient. In fact, no one's will be, even the greatest of the kings of the earth. And what should you do in such a situation? You should ask for conditions of peace. Now, going again to the parallel. What are the conditions of peace? What would be reasonable if you come to that king and you know you're going to lose and you say, I am coming with unconditional surrender and you tell me your conditions and, and we'll make peace right now. Okay. And the king says, well, I want you to lay down your arms. I want you to take an oath of allegiance to me. And I want you to sever all ties with the enemy. 
And whatever, whatever orders I give you from here on out, you're now in, a, in obedience to me and you've got to follow me and stop following those things of the enemy. And what if the other king then, the, the losing king, says, ooh, that sounds a bit rough. Um, can, I, I, can I meet monthly with, with the enemy? Can I keep my uh, allegiance if he sends me messages from here and, and here and there on an infrequent basis? Can I at least do them some of the time? Can I send uh, some of my resources to aid him and some to, 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 to you? Do you think that that conquering king is, is going to think that that's a very reasonable thing? Of course not. He's come to sue for peace. It's an unconditional surrender. And brothers and sisters, that is what the Christian life is. It is an unconditional surrender. We come as the rebels before the king. And we lay down our arms. And we cast everything before. And we we simply ask for mercy. And we say, do with us what you will. And I turn away from all allegiance to the rebel king who is Satan. I, I make an oath of allegiance to you. Well, that's the cost of Christian discipleship illustrated in these ways. Thirdly, he then summarizes it. The cost is summarized in verse 33. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. You see, he, he states it in a few ways, then he, then he illustrates it, and now he summarizes it. So likewise, whoever of you who does not forsake all that he has, not just mother or father, wife or husband, brothers or sisters, children, houses or lands, even the cross itself, your own life, but it's summarized by everything that you have in this world. You have to be willing to give up everything. Everything. And if you're not willing to do that, you cannot be Christ's disciple. Now, let's go through that again. Since the cost is being summarized, is, it, is that a reasonable cost? And the answer is, of course it is. You have to pick sides. Jesus has been saying that throughout the Gospel of Luke. Pick sides. Choose one or the other. Please. Don't think that you can do both. Again, Satan, he's such a, a slickster, isn't he? And he said, oh, sure. Yeah, you can serve him as well as me. You don't have to choose sides, really. All the time he's putting a uniform on you. All the time he's putting your, his words in your mouth. He's, he's hooked up a, 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 a thing in your back that makes you go in the direction that he tells you. And he, he's put blinders on your eyes that only show movies that, that show how wonderful the pleasures of sin are and that tells you nothing about what's going to happen in eternity. Again, it seems like the whole occupation of this world is please don't think about what's going to happen in eternity. Even funerals today. Please, let's not think about that. Why? Because Satan has something to hide from his people. Jesus has nothing to hide. And what he's saying is just a plain, clear truth. You can't have mixed allegiance. 
And if there is anything, anything at all that you have, anything that you do, anything that you are that is in competition with Christ, it's got to go. You cannot be those who make excuses. Say, well, I'd like to be a disciple, but what he's saying to you is very simple. If that is the case with you, you cannot be my disciple. It's very clear, isn't it? He's not adding anything to what is already the case. He's simply stating the reality of the matter, that those who think along those lines simply will never become his disciples. It's only those who are willing to lay it all down. Now, as I say, God in his mercy doesn't always ask for everything that he could ask for. But in theory, this is the cost. He said it very plainly. And this is what we need to do if we're going to be Christ's disciples. Well, the application, of course, the first and primary one is simply to count the cost on both sides. Count the cost on both sides because make sure you're doing that for the the alternatives as well. Because you could just count up everything and say, now let me get this straight. As if you're speaking to the garage again. And, And you're saying that the worst case scenario here is that it could be not just new brakes, but it could be a new transmission and a new engine and a new bodywork and new tire and on and on and on. And you're saying it could be everything. And, and he would say, yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying. And for you to then say, well, I don't think it's worth it. Right? Well, the other side of the story, of course, in this case, is what lies beyond this world, of course. Because what lies beyond this world is the thing that really matters. And if you're going to be counting costs, let's at least cost the, 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 the cost of not following Jesus, right? Because there's a cost to doing that too. There's a cost to being his disciple, but there's a cost to not being his disciple. What does it cost you in this world? Absolutely nothing, right? Because this world is going to receive you as its own. These kind of Conflicts of interest that we're speaking of are, are not going to be there. The world will absolutely receive your own. In fact, Jesus said to his own brothers, do you remember this? His own brothers, he said, the world cannot deal this way with you, cannot hate you, cannot reject you. Because it's, you're of, you're of, it, 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 this is its own, its own loving, its own, the world and its own. But there will be a cost in eternity. And that's the cost that we all have to think about. So one time of the, the week, the one time that we're away from the lies of Satan and we're reminded, oh yes, there is an eternity. We're not animals. We have eternal souls. And all of us deep down inside know that there is something that lies beyond this life. And the question is, what happens then? And the cost for those who are not Christ's disciples is that they must pay for their sins eternally in hell. That's an awful reality. And I would think, and Jesus has made that clear in many other places as well. And one would think that the natural conclusion of such a cost would be to say, even if I had to pay everything, that I could in this world. And I tell you, brothers and sisters, if you could speak to anyone in hell right now, they would say yes. 
Yes, I would go back and lay down absolutely everything that I had in this life to be a disciple of Christ. It is worth it. Count the cost on both sides. And secondly, I think that we should be reminded of the potential because the purpose is not to put believers off, but to prepare them for what's ahead. Calvin says this, We must consider beforehand what the profession of the gospel demands. The reason why many people yield to very slight temptations is that they have pictured to themselves unmixed enjoyment as if they were always to be in the shade and at their ease. You like that wording? As if you were always to be in the shade and at their ease. No man will ever become fit to serve Christ till he has undergone a preparation for warfare. You see that? You have to understand we're not going to be at ease. And if we expect for such things to happen, we understand that the world might well, there might be a cost to this discipleship. In fact, it might be everything. And if such things happen, we don't think then it's that something strange has happened to us. As it says in 1 Peter 4.12, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. We'll take it in our stride. We say, yep, this is exactly what Jesus said was, was coming. He warned us about it at the very beginning. And he keeps on reminding us periodically. But if, on the other hand, the cost turns out to be much less than expected, Because, brothers and sisters, let's be clear, for most of us, it is much less than expected. Yes, if you're in ISIS-controlled Syria and you profess publicly faith in Christ, your life will be a short and unpleasant one. And all that Christ said will happen in, in its fullness. But for so many of us living here, that is simply not the case. And in fact... Our job then is to glory in the mercy and goodness of God. That for so many of us, actually, our family relationships are better because we have the word of God to help us to be wise and teaching us to be loving, indeed teaching us to honor our father and our mother and to love our husbands and wives and children and so forth. Indeed, it's possible even that our material condition might be better because we're not wasting things with being wise with them and all the rest of it. And if so, if so, if that's the case, then we just rejoice, don't we? The Lord told me that this job was going, that this, this car repair was going to cost 25,000 pounds. And all it cost was 25 pence. And we just rejoice and we rejoice and we rejoice, don't we? Because God is so good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful indeed that you make things very clear to us. We know, Lord, that the world of illusion, the world of, of lies and obfuscation that belongs to the world of Satan. And unfortunately, we know that the whole world lies under the sway of these false things. But, Lord, we're thankful that you have opened this ray of light to us and you have reminded us of some very basic truths things that could not be any clearer that Lord we cannot be those who say well I've bought a piece of land I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come after you 
Lord, you've given us this wonderful invitation to come, not just to those who are qualified by their situation, but those who are disqualified by their great sin and have nothing to do with Christ at all. But you have yet, you've extended that invitation to everyone, said all who have come. You compel them to come in. Lord, we can't be those who make excuses, and we can't be those who put anything in this world above Christ. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be willing to lay down everything, yes, even our own lives, that we might have Christ. As we truly count the cost, not only the cost of discipleship, but, Lord, of the benefits of a blessed eternity in heaven with him. Lord, we pray that you would help us indeed then, that we be expecting trials and difficult things. And we would say that this is exactly what the Lord said would be coming. But Lord, if we have seasons of rest, seasons of joy, seasons of time underneath the shade, then let us all the more rejoice and say that you are very, very good to us, as indeed you are. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.